This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Hebrews 12 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. James 5.11 also talks about endurance when it says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Well, again and again, scripture tells us to press on as we follow Jesus Christ, even though the Christian life can bring with it a lot of trials and tribulations and sufferings. And that's because, as Romans 8 recounts, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. But why is it so important to endure and how can we keep going when we feel like giving up? Very practical questions that we're going to talk about today with Doug Gaiman. He is the president of Globe International, a mission sending agency based in Pensacola, Florida. And he is author of the book we'll be talking about called Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage and the Quest for Purpose. Doug, it's great to have you with us today. How are you? Thank you, Janet. Uh, I'm great. Thank you. I'm actually in Costa Rica, of all places, but it's an honor to be talking to you today. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm so glad the phone connection is great, and I'm sure you're doing some great work down there. I'm curious about this subject of perseverance. This, I think, is such an important thing to talk about, and I'm wondering why you think the power of perseverance is such an important subject for Christians especially. Well, I can't take complete credit for writing the book. Moody Publishers, actually, after talking with me about uh, me writing something for them, uh, after we talked about my own story, they said, uh, you really need to write a book about perseverance. So I guess in their view, I have a life or a message based on my life about perseverance. Um, But I can tell you that I've discovered as a Christian leader, as a global person who served overseas for many years and now lead a mission organization, that nothing worthwhile that we do in response to our obedience to Jesus is ever going to be producing fruit and be worthwhile without going through this time and this season of refining and patient labor that will later produce fruit. Right. I think you're right Word about change that. just isn't a quick, quick, quick fix. Yes, exactly. Well, and I am curious for you to tell people a little bit about your background, because you have been involved in ministry around the world. How have you dealt with the issue of perseverance? Well, you know, every, every person who goes into ministry, we have expectations. Uh, we feel like we're, call, we're answering a call from God. We have hope. We are, I tend to be very idealistic. I was, as a young man, I wanted to change the world for Jesus. I was so grateful for what He did for me, and I wanted to preach His good news around the world. Uh, and so you have an expectation of how that's going to turn out in terms of fruit, in terms of lives changed. And typically, our, t- our expectations are not quite in line with what we experience. And so we have then are faced with what amounts to a crisis. Um, mm-hmm. Am I going to deal with this disappointment, or am I going to deal with this challenge, this delay, or this 
persecution or maybe it's indifference. How am I going to deal with that? Am I going to quit and just get discouraged or am I going to press through, maybe make some adjustments and find God's pathway to fruitfulness? Um, that was my story. Um, I, I grew up underneath other leaders, interned under them, and then took those experiences and built my own sense of expectation, which were of course, dashed at the beginning. It, I didn't produce as much fruit as I was hoping for. But then I made a determination to stick it out and get some help. I went back to school. I did some learning, tried some different things, and eventually came into a fruitful place. And so I, I learned that um, as, a, as, the, as Hebrews who faith with through faith and patience inherit the promise. Yes, so. yes, that's great. Do you, when you mention your idealism, of course, I can relate to this. I have that sort of personality as well. Do you think that perseverance is more difficult for Christians who tend to be very idealistic, very gung-ho, very much saying what you reflected just there upon the idea that I want to change the world for the Lord. I want to change the world for Jesus. And then reality sets in sometimes and you recognize, hey, wait a minute, this isn't as achievable or as easy as I thought it was going to be. Is that kind of personality more often discouraged, more often prone to saying, I'm just going to give up? Um, well, I, it's, it's hard to say because all of us, our ideals are tested by God. Um, I, but, but I think, I actually think the opposite is true. I think idealistic people, when our ideals are really centered in the purposes of God, His glory, His consummate purposes, that even disappointments, though they are difficult and they're they're hard and they 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 affect us, they affect us in a very personal way. I think idealistic people actually have a better chance of getting through because when you when you read the the, the people of the Bible that are champion Abraham, Joseph, Noah, Moses, all of them saw something that was beyond themselves, they saw, they were looking for a city, you know, Hebrews says, they were looking for something that didn't yet exist, it was far off, they hoped for a better country, uh, all these things about future expectations, and that ideal is what drove them, and also enabled them and empowered them to persevere through a lot of uncertainties and difficulties. And the fact is, none of them served God perfectly. They made mistakes, they they had you know their own human faults, but it was actually their ideals, their their God centered ideals that kept them in kept them on the path. That's really good. I know that's been my experience. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. It kind of ties in with a quote that I took from your book because I thought it was so excellent. You have so many in this book that are excellent, but you have a quote in here that says the most powerful force for the advancement of the gospel is God's determined people and mo the most powerful force behind them is the glory of God. That seems to tie in with what you just said, that those Christians who are the most gung-ho and, and determined, I will follow you, Jesus, I will honor you, I will obey you to the best of my ability, that even when things become difficult and it's hard to persevere, God's determined people will continue on by the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I, you know, what I discovered in some of our deepest sufferings, and we had some very personal things I relate in my book, some, some losses that were very personal, and what I discovered in those times of suffering, too, um, that I had a glimpse of it even at the early stages. My, for example, my brother took his own life when I was 29, he mm. was 27, we were in Thailand, and I remember flying back on the airplane just in shock as we came home to grieve and 
uh, do the funeral. And I remember this scripture in Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah talks about, you know, the, the Messiah, the suffering servant, his, his vision of the Messiah. And he said, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I sat there on that airplane grieving and thinking, now I know what that means. Yeah. Um, I, I never knew what that meant before to be a person of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I had this sense that now I, now I understand a little bit what God must experience when he sees the world turning their back on him, when they see what it cost Jesus in his incarnation to come and suffer for us and be suffer beside us as the Emmanuel. Um, and I later, as we got through the grief, I, I really came to understand that as tragic as my brother's death was, and as, you know, how do you deal with that even theologically? Uh, what I saw was God's goodness, the Romans 8, God's working things together for our good. I saw that he gave our family a gift. He, he helped us know him as God's suffering servant, that we also learn something of him through our difficulties. And as we persevere through them, we actually become more effective witnesses for Jesus. Oh, wow. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss. It's just heartbreaking to hear about that. But I understand what you're talking about, that in the sanctification process, oftentimes it's the extreme suffering that we go through that helps us to learn more deeply about our Savior, and that just gives us more strength. It's kind of a paradox in a way, but that really seems to be the way it works out in the Christian life. Yeah, I mean, we're geared in the West because what I say in the book, a great good, uh, which is the prosperity and the safety and uh, the sense of systems that work. This is a good, this is a good thing. We're, we're very grateful for it, uh, and we want to see it retained in the future in our nation. But what it what has robbed us of is familiarity with suffering. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to hold it there just for a moment. Doug Gaiman is with us. His book is called Before You Quit, and we'll come right back to the discussion after this break on Janet Meffer Today. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. 3,100 Americans lost their lives yesterday and the day before, not to the coronavirus, but to abortion on demand in our country. It's a tragedy of incomparable proportions, with over 800,000 weekly, globally, losing their lives. In the face of this, Preborn is offering free, compassionate, Christ-centered care and ultrasounds to girls in unplanned pregnancies. Would you prayerfully consider sponsoring an ultrasound for a girl today? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound and $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Will you help a mom in need choose life? Just call now. 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Available now for home viewing on demand. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. He chose willingly to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Rick Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at I Still Believe Movie.com.
From now through April, Janet Meffer Today is partnering with Bible League to send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. So good to have you with us. And so good to be talking with my guest, Doug Gaiman. He's president of Globe International Emission Sending Agency in Florida. His book is called Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. Doug, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the sufferings that you have experienced and how that has affected how you persevere for the Lord. Does that seem to be, in your experience, that kind of suffering, to be more inclined to keep the Christian persevering? Is that part, would you say, of the sanctification process that God often uses in our lives to keep us going? I mean, it sounds strange, but is that part of the process, do you think? Yeah, I actually, I think it is. Um, I think we have to we have to become familiar with difficulty. It, it's, you know, the Isaiah 53, acquainted with grief. Uh, we part of our growth is becoming acquainted with what it means to suffer. There's a really an interesting verse in Colossians. Paul's writing this, of course, from prison, uh, unjustly placed there. Chapter one, I believe it's verse 24. He says, "I thank God for my sufferings on your behalf, because I am I am fulfilling what is lacking." in the sufferings of Christ for you. Mm-hmm. And you think about that, what was what could possibly be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, you know, that's hard to say. His work was complete. It was finished. Everything was done that needed to be done, except for one thing, and that is not everyone has yet heard or seen what Jesus has done. And so what I think Paul was basically saying is that my suffering as a Christian and my doing it with patience and with grace is a testimony for what Jesus did for me by his sufferings and taking it patiently and with grace. So we are a living example to others by enduring suffering in a Christ-like way. And that's what I've learned about difficulty. If we can if we can suffer in a Christ-like way when God asks us to and not lose our faith or not behave in a way that's not honoring to Jesus, in some way that becomes one of our most, one of our most compelling messages. Yes. And I, I tend to believe that Christians are at our, at our best when we go through difficulty because we have something transcendent that the world just does not have. We Amen. have a hope that <laughs> no one else knows about. Yeah, you're totally right about that. You know, I I really appreciate that you distinguish also between these three kinds of perseverance. You talk about everyday endurance. You talk about aspirations for greatness. You talk about moral courage, which you say can be very different or they can be interrelated. Can you speak a little bit about the importance of these three forms of perseverance that are all things that come up in the course of our lives? Sure. So, Everyday endurance is the everyday stuff we deal with and how we and how we respond to it. It's broken down automobile, automobiles, delayed flights, uh, lines at the supermarket, traffic jams. It's the stuff that just irritates us, especially in our somewhat entitled culture of the West, where we expect things to go well for us because of our uh, technological and other advances. And so when they don't, it's hard for us. But how we as Christians respond in those types of little provocations 
is a little bit of a litmus test about our ability to handle greater levels of difficulty. And that's how that relates to uh, other kinds of difficulty. So the second one is aspirations for greatness. And that's where we voluntarily enter into something difficult. It could be something as personal as trying to lose weight or run a marathon. We just suffer so that we can <laughs> attain a personal goal. Or it could be something very Christ-driven where he gives us an assignment and we just have to doggedly go after it for the glory of God. But it's a voluntary thing, and in some ways we can choose not to. Right. The third kind is moral courage, where um, difficulty is thrust upon us. We are faced with a loss or something that's out of our control. And in some ways that's the most noble, because now the outcome is uncertain, and even the purpose, why do we have to suffer through this, is in question. We may ask God, why am I, why do I have to deal with this? Why this grief? And how we embrace that type of pain and how we lean in on Jesus and allow him to shape us even through an unwanted difficulty is a great test of our faith. Yes, that's right. And those are all really interesting, the way that you break those down. What would you say makes people persevere, for example, through that last category that you mentioned, moral courage? Because as you say, it's one thing to join Weight Watchers. It's another thing when you have a loved one commit suicide or somebody die or some tragedy occur. What about that issue? What makes somebody persevere despite a situation that may be completely, you know, something you could never have handled if you'd known it was coming in advance. Yeah. Um, the, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said something. It's ironic that he said it because he was an atheist. He was very anti-Christian. He said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Hmm. And it, ironically, it's odd, but in this point, he and Jesus would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, I heard a preacher say that one time, and I thought, boy, that is so true, because Jesus basically says the same thing, and that is, God gives us a purpose for living, and we pursue Him with, our, with all the passion and all the intention that we have, and we are willing to suffer for his honor and glory because we love him so much. He gives us the why. Right. He gives us the reason. And so that, I think, is really behind every Christian's ability to endure is that idea that we see something in the heavenlies. It's maybe not with the naked eye, but with, it's with our heart of faith, we see something that is transcendent, that we are willing to pursue and hold on to no matter what might happen to hmm, us. Very good. What would you say, for example, Doug, when you're talking about what you learn over the course of your maturity in Christ, you know, we all learn a lot of lessons over the years, the longer that we walk with the Lord. But for the new Christian or the young Christian, there may still be that lack of experience that will bring mm-hmm. that person to the place where the first big trial that comes along, he will or she will be tempted to give up. And I know, you know, that that's a common thing with a lot of Christians, probably all of us at some point say, I'm just out of here. I just, I can't deal with this anymore. How do you give that person encouragement in Christ when you just feel like giving up? You just don't think, I I can't stand, I can't keep going, Lord. I'm just out of strength. I have nothing left. Yes. Well, the first thing I think we all need to uh, embrace is that every, every difficulty is really an opportunity for us to take a hard look at what we really believe and what we really want. Hmm. Um, anything worthwhile is worth suffering for and fighting for and, and waiting for. And so young people who today who are by, in some ways 
being told we can have things instantly. And I don't want to just pigeonhole young people. That was true when I was 18, too. Um, but, you know, this idea that a difficulty actually gives us an, a chance to see what do I really believe and how, how much do I want to hang on to something that I want and to fight and to work for it. Uh, I think the, the second thing that's important in, in, that, in that journey is to know how to engage yourself in the interim. What do you do in this gap between an aspiration for something and its fulfillment? There, <laughs> there are things you can do. Uh, I list five, actually, what I call self-care and difficulty. The first is to read and learn. So, you know, Bible reading and engaging with good Christian books or even going back to school and getting some education so you can expand your understanding and that gives you perspective on your experience. I call that the cognitive. And then worship is the intuitive. It's leaning in on Jesus in your heart. Even, you know, the, the, the idea of things that pass all understanding, as Paul says. And then the third is be creative. Try something, distract a little bit and be creative and do some things that are healthy for you. I know when we went through difficulty, we had to make a decision between, I had to make a decision between engaging unhealthy habits and getting into addictive behaviors or expressing myself in some positive, creative way that I could, you know, express even my lament uh, in a way that was constructive and Christ-honoring. And then the final two are diversions, taking a Sabbath, getting a rest, doing something different, adjusting your life. And the final one is just faithful living. I remember my grandmother, when I was a kid, went out to their farm and loved to get up and work in the barn, but I hated getting up at five in the morning to milk the cows, and she'd shake me awake and she'd say, look, the cows don't care how you feel. They need to be milked, so get up and at them. (laughs) And there's something for all of us to remember that we're glad the police are doing their jobs in the middle of the night so we're safe, even if maybe they have a head cold and they had a fight with their spouse before they left for work. We're still glad they're faithfully doing their jobs. All of us has things we need to be faithful with because a lot of other people are depending on us. That's a really good perspective. Is there anybody in particular whose perseverance inspires you? Somebody from church history, somebody from the Word of God. You mentioned Noah, for example. There have been a lot of missionaries, obviously, who faced incredible trials and persevered for the Lord. Would there be one person among others that you would say, this Christian is the one I keep going back to? Yeah. Well, there's there's one uh, in my book. I use it, use his example as, uh, as a, a man that really inspired me when I was young. I called him W.C., and he was an evangelist that had to labor for three years of disappointments with me working as an intern, watching his determination. So that's a very relevant contemporary example that's happened in the last 30, 40 years um, that's in my book. It's worth reading. It's a great introduction to the book. Uh, other ones from history, like William Carey, uh, who was now con- called the father of modern missions, right. he one of the famous things he said was, I can plod. He faced a lot of difficulty as he tried to, tried to change the paradigm of his day, which was sort of the theological underpinnings of his upbringing in, in England, and said, shouldn't we go to the nations? And some of the folks said, no, God will take care of that on his own. He doesn't need our help. And Kerry had this example of just plodding forward with his, uh, this idea, and eventually it bore such amazing fruit that here we are today, 
400 years later and we're still quoting some of the things that he did. Oh, that's, that's so profound true. to me. Oh, mm-hmm. me too. I love him. And, and there are some wonderful examples of other people that you mentioned in your book. But what an encouragement this is because we all have need of perseverance. We're all headed toward heaven. We're all excited to get there. But in the interim, we have a lot of work to do and it's important mm-hmm. not to give up. And you can read about it yes. in the book Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage and the Quest for Purpose by my guest, Doug Gaiman. So good to have you with us, Doug. Keep up the good work. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Janet. My privilege to be with you today. God bless. God bless you too, Doug. Thanks again. And we'll be back right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe, available now for home viewing on demand, starring K.J. Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. We have all reeled at the news that while small businesses are closing during this time of social distancing, abortion clinics are staying open under the excuse that they provide essential services. Is it any wonder that the supporters of the culture of death are also willing to exploit aborted babies in order to try to find a cure for the coronavirus? We're going to talk about it now with Dr. David Prentice, Vice President and Research Director at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and he has co-written a great piece on this subject over at townhall.com. Dr. Prentice, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Janet. Good to be with you. Well, good to have you here. Uh, So this Washington Post article that came out recently says that there are possible treatments for coronavirus, but you have to use body parts harvested from abortions. Why are they saying that? Well, I I think, and we mentioned this in, in the piece, that they don't want to let a serious crisis go to waste. Right. Uh, There, frankly, is no good reason to use aborted baby body parts in any of this research. But what these people have done is they have maybe convinced themselves, certainly trying to convince the rest of us, that the only way to get to a treatment and a cure of the coronavirus is by using aborted baby organs and not even as a direct treatment. This is like two or three steps removed. What they want to do is use this fetal tissue, these body parts, to make what are called humanized mice that have a human immune system. And then what they would do would be to test a potential drug or a potential vaccine. They're also not telling you that they have never done that with this particular type of mouse and they haven't even shown that they can infect that mouse with this particular virus so there's a lot of ifs and maybes and so on but bottom line they want to do it and they just want your and my taxpayer dollars to do it with yeah well, this is weird for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is the FDA has now approved this hydroxychloroquine as an emergency yeah. treatment. So if we have something that's working and these doctors are testifying that it's working, at least in the initial trials and in some of the doctors who've been prescribing it for their own patients, why do we need this in light of the fact that we seem to have a malaria drug that would help and it's already in existence? Yeah, we don't need it, and and that's just it. There are so many. In fact, I, I came across an article listing the top 60 potential treatments, wow. none of which required aborted baby body parts. 
one of which was the hydroxychloroquine that we've mentioned used by itself or in combination with other drugs, which, like you say, is already starting to show success. And there are a whole host of other things, including even ways to make that kind of uh, test model mouse, but without using aborted fetal tissue. There is no medical reason or scientific reason, and certainly no ethical reason, that we would have to part out aborted babies, like parting out a car to use for experiments. Goodness. Where is this idea coming from that you have to use oh. fetal tissue to somehow cure coronavirus? What's the root of this or the, the original source for this idea? Well, I, actually, you can go back several decades, back to the 1960s, when the only way they could grow cells in the laboratory was actually to start with younger and younger tissue. And they established a couple of what are called cell lines way back then. Move forward to the 1990s. Again, kind of the only thing they could think of was the younger the tissue, the better. We can maybe make these kind of test models for the laboratory, but we want to use very early tissue and so on. And it's really an antiquated science that has held on because people have kept getting money to do those experiments. So uh, last June, the Trump administration started to shut that down, and we're very thankful for that. They basically said, we're not going to spend any more money, certainly on any government laboratories using that tissue. We're not going to give out any more contracts to do those kinds of experiments, and we're going to start shutting down uh, these university grants Uh, that want to use this, they might be talking about, oh, we're going to do such great science, which it isn't, (laughs) but they need to look at the ethics of this. And in fact, uh, they just finished taking nominations at the Department of HHS, Health and Human Services, for an ethics review board to go through these and say, you know, do you really need to do this? Yep. No, because there are alternatives, but they're, they're going to go through and look at the ethics of all of this. Good, good. That's excellent. Well, it's probably another way to bash Trump, too. It is the Washington Post, after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think there is uh, a certain aspect of that going on any time, no matter what the man does, however good it might be, it's going to be his fault. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned adult stem cells as well, which are ethical. Obviously, you're not using aborted baby parts. Um, What is the reality of using adult stem cells in medical advancements? Because there have been some good medical advancements because of adult stem cells. Why aren't we talking more about that? Yeah. and, And it's probably the mainstream media, again, like the Washington Post, that are not really telling the whole story, uh, you're right that adult stem cells, which do not require the destruction of the donor, as you get with embryonic or with aborted fetal tissue, adult stem cells are actually showing good success. There are now over 2 million people who've been successfully treated with adult stem cells. And that's things like bone marrow adult stem cells, even from umbilical cord blood or the solid part of the cord after the baby's born, (laughs) and treating not just uh, leukemias and cancers, which we've been doing for years, 
but starting to treat things like multiple sclerosis and lupus and diabetes and spinal cord injury and stroke and the list gets longer and longer almost monthly janet Hmm. and they have actually started to use adult stem cells in the current virus crisis where they had again early experiments still need to be careful and tested all out but they were treating virus patients who had developed a severe pneumonia because of their infection they gave them adult stem cells the patients all uh, improved and survived versus the people who had not been treated Uh so i mean there's a another good opportunity here uh, but again it's all ethical it's not destroying any lives to try and get a good therapeutic treatment. Right, right. Who profits the most with the, the embryonic stem cells or the body part stem cells that the Washington Post is advocating? Who, who really does profit the most from this? Well, I, I think you can kind of draw a chain. Certainly, folks like Planned Parenthood, yep. because despite uh, all of their disclaimers and so on, they were getting paid. I mean, David Daleiden's videos made it very clear yep. that they were getting money for baby hearts and <sighs> brains and livers and so on. They're middlemen. Yeah. It's, it's literally a trafficking of it, it baby is. body parts yeah. where these middlemen then will collect the tissues, pay a small amount uh, to the abortuary, but then they might... Uh, work out the cells from those or just package them and ship them on to researchers. They're making money, certainly along the way, uh, sometimes a huge amount of money. And then, frankly, the researchers have been getting taxpayer-funded federal grants to do some of this research. Again, it's antiquated science, though. There are better modern ways to do this that don't involve death and destruction and that's where that money ought to be going and we're seeing it start to move that way we would just like to to totally cut off any of those funds for aborted fetal tissue research absolutely well and you point out and this is such an important point these objectors always fail to mention that their experiments don't just require the intentional and deliberate destruction of human life to get the body parts they so covet they incentivize it that is such a great point you can read the piece at townhall.com exploiting a crisis unethical experiments undermine real help for coronavirus patients dr david prentice with us from the charlotte Lozier institute thank you so much dr prentice Thank you, Janet. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this. If you could ease the suffering of a persecuted Christian right now, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford, and I know you would. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those who are persecuted, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere suffers, we suffer together. These believers live where evangelism is criminalized, where churches are burned, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're not forgotten. For only $5, a believer like Anna in Africa 
Sarah will receive a Bible, be discipled in her new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20, and a limited time Bible for Bible match will help us meet our goal of sending the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted Christians. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, call now, 800-YES-WORD. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back, and thank you so much for your generosity. We are really blown away. We are about halfway toward our goal of sending 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. This is part of a great ministry by Bible League, and we fully support what they're doing. There are all kinds of people coming to know the Lord across this world and are suffering greatly for their faith, and they need Bibles in their own language. I recognize, though, that this is a very difficult time for a lot of people, and that it really is a sacrifice at this time for many people to be able to give $5 to give a Bible. But if you're able to do it, we still have the other half of our goal to meet. We want to send 1,200 Bibles to the persecuted church. And right now there's a match for every gift given by Janet Meffer Today listeners. And our goal of 1,200 Bibles will be doubled to 2,400 Bibles if you're able to give. Here's how you can give. You just call 800-YES-WORD, 800 yes Word, which is 800-937-9673, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. And just so you get a little bit of a sense of what it means for these Christians to receive Bibles in their own language because of your generosity, I want to play for you a short clip, a testimony from an Albanian woman by the name of Olga. It's such a privilege and honor to know the Lord, and the Lord have chosen us to have time and to serve and to work with and with our personal life, we know how Bible value to us because that's how we grow, because that's our spiritual food. And so therefore, I, uh, we, uh, I encouraging to the lot of American people that uh, need to look into this field because uh, the Bible is very central to our life, or to the Christian life, especially the young believer. Uh, without a Bible, like without food, 
Now that really hits home for me right now because here we are, we're all rushing out to the grocery store and we're panicking if we can't find toilet paper. We're panicking if we can't find enough pasta and we haven't stored enough at home. And and we take for granted so much the way God has blessed us materially and we take our Bibles for granted. I mean, this really convicts me. We take our Bibles for granted. I don't even know how many Bibles I have. I have a number of Bibles and I listen to testimonies like this and I think to myself, There are Christians in this world, Janet, who don't have any Bible at all. And how are you supposed to feed on the word when you don't have the word? This is just such a great opportunity for us to get the word of God into the hands of people who desperately need it. So if you can give a gift today, $35 will send seven Bibles. A gift of $100 will send 20. If you can help out, just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Word or there is a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you again so much for what you're doing for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to talk a little bit about the media. Not that I enjoy talking about the media, but I thought this was quite amazing. The New York Times has been doing some really shoddy journalism as of late. Well, they've been doing shoddy journalism for quite a while, but especially as it regards Christians. They are just pummeling Christians. Did you hear or did you read this story over at the New York Times? The original headline was the road to coronavirus hell was paved by evangelicals. Then they got pummeled for saying this. So they changed the headline. Not much better. It says the religious rights hostility to science is crippling our coronavirus response. Really? Because the FDA just approved hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin as an emergency treatment for coronavirus. And according to initial reports, it's remarkably effective in shortening the length of the effect of the virus and people are getting healed. So you know, I, the religious right is to blame for the coronavirus response. And it is just the most religiously hostile article. It, it, I mean, she might as well be swinging a bat and trying to hit any evangelical within reach. This is Catherine Stewart, the author of a book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And she's connecting dots that don't connect at all. She's trying to imply that because there are Christians who have questioned whether or not it's necessary to do this kind of extreme social distancing, that they are science deniers and all the rest. Never mind the fact that President Trump, who's unduly under the influence by these crazy religious rights, activists is doing all of these, I think, very measured responses and strong responses in some respects to deal with a coronavirus pandemic. I think he's done a fantastic job. He's trying to get ventilators. He's ordered GM to make ventilators. He has dealt with this issue of the drugs and trying to get the right drugs to people who are in desperate need. He has extended the deadline now for social distancing to the end of April because he's listening to these advisors. He's looking at these models. He's trying to make the right decisions for America to keep people safe. He enacted the travel ban for people who have been traveling to China. And what more do you want from the man? And and how is he denying science? It's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. But now the New York Times has done another story because they had to you know, eat a little crow with that previous story. Not that they take it down or anything. They just changed the headline and hope that their leftist base will keep them from getting in too much trouble because Christians don't really read the New York Times, generally speaking, as their first source of news. But an article appeared on Sunday night, and it was Liberty University brings back its students and coronavirus, too. 
Now, they have since put out two, at least two additional versions of this story, and they've done a little bit of tweaking here and there. But basically, in the subhead on on the original story, it says the decision by the school's president, Jerry Falwell Jr., to partly reopen his evangelical university enraged residents of Lynchburg, Virginia. Then students started getting sick. That doesn't sound good, does it? In the original story... This paragraph said, as of Friday, they quote Dr. Thomas Epis Jr., who is the physician running Liberty Student Health Service. And it says in an interview with Dr. Epis, uh, so Mr. Falwell, a staunch ally of President Trump and an influential voice in the evangelical world, reopened the university last week, igniting a firestorm epidemiologically and otherwise. As of Friday, Dr. Epis said nearly a dozen Liberty students were sick with symptoms that suggest COVID-19, the disease caused by the virus. Three were referred to local hospital centers for testing. Another eight were told to self-isolate. Well, Jerry Falwell Jr. came out with his own statement after this appeared, and he said it's false. He said it's false. He said the New York Times ambushed Liberty University to publish a false and misleading story claiming that students started getting sick after the university received students back after spring break. The Times attributed the reporter's conclusion about the scope of the COVID-19 symptoms being about a dozen students to a local doctor who has consulted with Liberty. The truth is a far different story. Both the numbers and the sequencing are wrong. At about 12.30 p.m. on Sunday afternoon, a New York Times reporter emailed university spokespersons with a list of 12 questions to be answered for a story that was going to run in the paper Monday. About 20 minutes later, she wrote to say the story would go online in a few hours. Unable to gather specific answers to all the questions, President Falwell called the reporter and gave her an interview. The story was posted at 3 p.m. and contained several errors. The university promptly provided the reporter detailed numbers on the student cases and requested corrections. No correction has been forthcoming, so this statement is being issued. Liberty disputes the number of students with symptoms that the Times reported. Liberty is not aware of any students in its residence halls testing positive for COVID-19 or, in fact, being tested at all, much less any residence hall students having sufficient symptoms of COVID-19 to get tested. Liberty can confirm that following the U.S. Surgeon General's recommendation concerning persons who had been in the New York City metropolitan area. Liberty asked four students who had recently been in that area and who were living in campus residence hall rooms to self-quarantine for the recommended period in single rooms at Liberty's otherwise unoccupied housing annex, a former hotel a few miles from campus. Two did and two opted to return to their permanent residence instead. There were three students in close contact with these individuals and they were also asked to self-quarantine in separate rooms in the annex. They did. They're providing meals and attending to their needs at Liberty. And this was precautionary and not based on any symptoms consistent with COVID-19 among the eight. And it goes on a little bit. So the New York Times updated the story at least twice that I saw. They first had in the first version of the story that the self-quarantines would take place in the hotel owned by Liberty, which was off campus. They took it out of the subsequent two versions that they printed. But what I found interesting was the latest version says as of 8 p.m., On March 29th, of those three students tested, one was positive, one was negative, and one student's results are still pending, according to this doctor. So in other words, they put out a story implying that a dozen students had coronavirus on the Liberty campus, and in fact, 50% of those who have been tested now have come back negative. Granted, it's only two students, but at least one of them doesn't have coronavirus. So if it's not coronavirus and maybe it's just the flu, the flu is pretty contagious as well. So how do we know the other students don't just have the flu? 
You see, this is irresponsible journalism. It's insane to do this sort of thing. And it's crazy to rush it if you haven't yet been able to verify all of the things that you're claiming. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for a newspaper that prides itself on being one of the top newspapers in America is printing this drivel simply because they can't stand Christians. And let's see if more people come down with coronavirus. That would be terrible. But Falwell's original point was we want to be able to give international students a place to stay when they have no other place to stay. And other colleges have students on campus as well. What do you want us to do? It's crazy out there. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Companies, I Still Believe, available now for home viewing on demand. Starring KJ Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at I Still Believe Movie.com. Thanks for being with us.